Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory, to live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. In this episode of Octanon Verba, we hear part two of my interview with UFC fighter, Victor Henry. In part one, Victor shares the mindset preparation that comes with facing challenges and stepping into high-stakes opportunities. We also discuss creating a routine of mental and physical preparation, how martial art culture influences the way that we treat others in and out of the ring, and why focusing on the fight in the moment is critical for success. You can hear part one on episode 86 of Octanon Burba. And now, please enjoy part two of my interview with the tremendous Victor Henry. And as you were mentioning about techniques and about our advantages, a lot of people saw you just as sort of like as a, as a catch wrestler. Uh, again, a four to one underdog in their mind, first of all, shows that they weren't, they didn't know what they were doing. As a matter of fact, when I approached you, I approached you very honestly. I was like, listen, I'll be honest. I, I hadn't heard of you before this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was the smart way to do it because that way I'm humble at the very beginning and say, listen, you opened my eyes to a lot of things. And then your stand-up, what was something maybe people underestimated from you, you had this very, how do I say it? Young guys like to flail. Mm-hmm. They also are afraid to really sit down. So even when they connect, they, they aren't sure of it. And that's when they miss. With you, you had this patient aggression and pressure. And it, it showed there were a couple of times, again, it's a fight. There's a couple of times where maybe you didn't feel you were in your best position. And I saw an interview where you said that. But even then, you recovered beautifully because, again, you've done this for so long. And this is just sort of, this is the dance, right? This is the flow whenever you're within that fight. Yeah. So the originally, like I said, you know, Hany Barcelos, he's a, he's a nice guy. I mean, there's a lot of different types of fighters. Sometimes people, they, they hate their opponent because they have to hate their opponent in order to fight them. And then afterwards, they're all, there's a lot of other types of fighters where they'll talk so much crap because they have to talk themselves into a corner because now they have to feel like they have to fight this guy to some sort of better ability as if we weren't going to get in a fight before. But Hanan Barcelos, he was he was he was a gentleman in the back, you know. He shook my hand. He's like, "Hey, let's get put on a great show." And he was a sportsman. He he was a great guy. So coming into the fight, I already knew. Hey, just because he's nice doesn't mean he's not going to try to punch my face in, you know. <laughs> so physically, just shaking his hand, I can tell this dude is strong. He is a he is he is gorilla strong. So I'm like, okay, well that kind of gives it away. I can't just grapple him, you know. If I run away, like so, in my mind, I'm thinking if I run away so much and I just try to slip and dodge and just keep too much distance, he's going to walk forward. He's going to walk forward on me the entire time. And I'm not going to be able to effectively punch off my back foot, which is not going to, this is not going to look good in the same sense. I can't stand with him right in the middle because if I'm standing flat footed and I try to match him power for power, it's not going to work well for me. So I have to stand just enough in front of him to get him committed to throwing these hard, powerful combinations. So hopefully I can slip and get in the middle of these shots and just touch him on the overreach and touch him, just touch him. And over time, he's going to be exhausted and he won't know why, but it's because I'm close enough for him to hit 
but far away enough for him to hit effectively. You know, so even though I took some shots, you know, forehead, I made sure that I was rolling, my chin was tucked, I wasn't getting the full brunt, the full frontal of the damage. And even then, I was caught out of position a couple times. I used the momentum spin off and try to regain control of the center of the cage. That way, now he feels like he's on the back foot. So, you know, there's a, you know, there's a lot of just little, little tricks just to tire people out. Sometimes you ain't even got to be a physical person just to be in somebody's face. But if you're in their face just enough to where they're fearing throwing super hard, now they're going to be breathing, breathing all heavy and hard and everything. And then now, now you take their gas away with little, with little teeth kicks, little, little, you know, front kicks and everything. You little chasse by if you're, if you're familiar with the uh, savant. You, so you you know you stand in, you stand just enough in front of Hominy to get him thrown, but just far enough away so we can slip, move, cover cover some ground, work your way back to the middle, and then engage him again. And I want to try to take this opportunity to give an analogy for people because whether it be going to say hi to somebody at a coffee shop, write a book, create their own business, have that conversation with their spouse or their loved one that they're afraid to, you have to stand in the fucking pocket. You have to be willing to get punched in the face. You have to be close enough to be able to do that to create the opening to have that opportunity. Because if all you do, like you said, is you're just covering, you're running the whole time, it's going to be really hard for you to have any kind of opportunity within that. We have to wade into the chaos and be willing to be there, knowing that there is danger, but also knowing I feel that I had the skill set to survive this. It was funny because at the bar that I work at currently, I started off as a bouncer. Now they have a they had they had bartenders at the time. But they also have a pizza counter. And when you're talking financial, financially, yes, they have a pizza counter, but there was nobody that was scheduled to the pizza counter. So here I am, I'm a bouncer and I'm sitting on the wall and I see this long line forming at the pizza counter. And I'm just like, man, I hope one of these freaking bartenders starts tending to the pizza counter. But I understand why they didn't want to, because for me to engage somebody on a pizza order would take about two, three minutes. You know, what do you want? You want wings? You want a pizza? You want whatever? Okay. That'll be X 99. And then they tip two bucks, three bucks, maybe who knows. Right. So that's two minutes or three minutes out of my time to get $3 tip. When in reality, if I'm at the bar and it's a deep bar, I serve one person a $7 drink and it takes me, uh, takes me 45 seconds to make this drink. If it's a, if it's an easy drink, whiskey, sour, you know, vodka, soda, whatever. Yeah, rum and coke, yeah. Yeah, I I make them a simple drink. They tip me a dollar. Okay, cool, whatever. Boom. Next person. Okay, same thing. Rum and coke. Boom, they tip me $2. Boom, there's $3 one minute. You know, in the time that it took me to serve this one person at the pizza counter, two or three minutes, and that's if they know what they want. You know, a lot of people these days, though, even in Japan, they won't get in line unless they know what they want. But you have a lot of people here where they just kind of look at the menu and they don't know what they want. And you're sitting, you're sitting there. It's like, bro, come on now, you know. Like, so, you know, you get two to three minutes to get this one order. You tip three dollars. Meanwhile, the bartender has served what six, seven, eight people, and in the same time, you've made at least twice that. So it's like, why? Wh- what incentive do they have? So, anyways, I'm sitting behind. I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, yo, like you, this line is forming. And I'm supposed to be security. So what do I do? I just kind of scoop behind the uh, the pizza counter. And I look at the computer and I just kind of start touching around. I'm like, what can I get you, man? So I just start helping now. And then I just afterwards, I'm like, okay, cool. I put it there and I just leave. And I go back to my security job. 
you know, walking around, helping out and everything. And of course, these people, they want to, they want to drink, you know, they were like, Hey, with this pizza, can I get a rum and Coke or whatever? So I have to yell, Hey, can this person get a rum and Coke? So they make me the rum and Coke real quick. And then I, you know, give it all here. Here's your number, whatever. Eventually it got to Victor, just make it yourself. And I'm just like, I'm not a bartender. In fact, I don't even drink at all. You know, I'm not a recovering. I just never got, I just never got curious to drinks. So I was just like, okay, yeah, well, whatever. I don't know what any of this rum and coke shit is. This is how much you put in it. Boom, boom. Mm, Okay. So then from there, that's when I slowly started bartending. And then they pulled me into a bartending position. But to go back, circle back, I had to throw myself into that fire. I could have stayed on sitting on the wall and, you know, watching and, and doing all this, but throwing myself into what I did not know into the chaos, into the, the chaos of guest service, you know, of the service industry rather just, you know, okay, this is what this person wants. Boom, boom, boom. You, you take their order, you make their order. Does everything look cool? Yeah. Okay, cool. Here's your number. That'll be there. That'll be $7 and whatever the hell. And here you go, man. Throwing myself into that fire has made me more of a, you know, I guess more of a talker. Now I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit better at talking to people now because bartending and everything, you know, being in the service of other people keeps you humble. And, you know, even then I don't, I mean, there's been people that, Hey, where do I recognize you from? I said, I don't even know, man. Yeah. I, I, I keep my self when I'm at the bar. Cause you'll, you'll find that sometimes drunk people, they just want to challenge you. And it's like, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no sense in that, you know, hit, hitting on a drunk person, you know, eh, whatever, dude. But again, throwing yourself into the chaos so you could learn something, learn a new skill, get better at it. You know, diamonds aren't made from being co- uh, comfortable. They're made from coal being, you know, hot and pressure, hot and pressure. We don't know what we're made of until we face adversity, until we're in it. And the way we conduct ourselves in the face of adversity tells us how we'll do everything else in our lives. So like you said, if we can't make this, uh, again, the physical realm, there's some people that are like, yeah, I crush it in the gym or I crush it fighting. But can they bring that over to other parts of their life and their finances and their nutrition and their relationships? A lot of them can't. And I, I love that you bartend because I, I bartended in Atlanta for five years. And there's these skills that overlap where as a bartender, this person walks in, I have to immediately read their body language, see what they're doing. Are they here looking for a girl? Are they here looking for a friend? Are they looking towards the point of the bar because we're four deep and they're trying to get my attention? Or is this guy got on like a tapper t-shirt? I need to punch him in the face now to save myself time later. I mean, what do I have to do? Also understanding that I have to make him like me enough to tip me to snap that Bud Light and give that rum and coke. And I have to do all that quickly. So that helped from the martial arts because you can see that person's intention. If they lean back, they shift their weight, they blade towards you, they make a fist. That's an indication. But like you said, as a fighter, you have that advantage, but now you have that advantage of the conversation because in society, we can't always punch people, even though we would like to sometimes, especially on social media. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, that's frowned upon, <laughs> which is very sad. But, you know, there's a lot of people, hey, there's a lot of people that need to get punched. And there's a lot of people out there that feel that I need to be punched. So it is what it is. It is what it is. I remember Guru Santos saying that if I teach you a technique, you learn one technique. But if I teach you a concept, I teach you a thousand techniques. I've never seen a person that's strong that has not been through adversity in their life in some capacity. Can you give us an example of an adversity that you went through in your life that at the time it felt like you just weren't going to get through it or you just wanted to give up, you just wanted to quit. But once you got through it, you look back on it and said, wow, had I not gone through that, I never would have learned X, Y, and Z in the process. So the first thing that 
comes to mind is what I told you a little about earlier. When I was 18, I got kicked. I was living with my mom and I got kicked out of the house. Now, the reason why I got kicked out of the house is because I was dating this girl and I grew up in a very traditionally Christian household, you know? So I'm 18 years old. I'm dating this girl. My mom finds out that her and I are bumping uglies. You know, we're going heels to Jesus. And my mom was just like, that's, that shit ain't happening house. You know, you know, you know, you're fornicating, no premarital, premarital shit. So you got a choice, either dump her or you leave this house. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm leaving. You know, of course I go and I move my, my father over in Marino that wall. He was staying in Lake Paris in California and I'm staying over there and life sucked. You know, I was, uh, I would wake up and what I would do is I would go to, I would work a, a construction job with him. And then I still wanted to train martial arts. So I was looking for a gym. And I was going to San Jacinto Community College. So I was, you know, working college and trying, still trying to train martial arts. I finally found a martial arts school called Marcellini's Martial Arts Academy, but it was over in Moreno Valley. Well, I didn't have a license. So I, I borrowed my cousin's bicycle and I biked down this long, dark road for about an hour and a half or two hours. And we're, we're not talking about these city long, dark roads. We're talking about over in River, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, what state are you in? I'm in Oklahoma, but I've been in California. Yeah, just think about some long, dark road with old, old crack houses, crackheads on the street, and it's like, okay, well, I'm just gonna bike down the street for an hour and a half and see how far it is, and you know, eventually I get there, and eventually I would take class, and then I have to bike all the way back, only to get up at like five in the morning so I can go work this construction job, job again with my dad. Well, anyways, I was still with this girl. Now, this girl, she, uh, you know, we're young, young, dumb, and full of cum. You know what I'm saying? So we're trying to make this work. And since I'm not there all the time, since I was staying in Southgate, since I'm not there all the time, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't working out. You know, like, of course it wasn't working out for her because she needed somebody that was going to be there. And I understood that, but it's like, Hey, I could come down on the weekends. So it was supposed to be, I would go down on the weekends because my dad would drive me because I didn't have a license. What it turned into, well, my dad's like, well, no, I'm not taking it. I can't borrow the truck. I can't borrow the truck today. So, uh, and he was, we were borrowing my uncle's truck. So I was like, I would tell her, Hey, I can't go down there. You know, because of that, it caused a bunch of, uh, it caused a bunch of rifts in the relationship. And eventually we broke up with her after I broke up with her. You know, I was talking to my, eventually I, I, I mind you this through this whole time. I'm not even talking to my mom or dad or my stepdad rather. Eventually started talking to them again. And then my mom goes, do you realize now that you were wrong? And this is circling back to the question where, where do, did I feel like I was giving up or did I find some strength and everything? And I said, listen, mom, I was wrong about her, but I was not wrong about standing up for the things that I wanted and doing the things that I want to do with my life. Being 18 years old as a young man, the world is kind of your oyster, but you have to make a decision on the things that you want to go towards. And when you make those decisions and you go for it to the best of your ability, you'll find that you're going to run face first into the ground sometimes. And because you are face full of dirt, you got, you got to get back up and you got to start falling even less. You got to fall less and less and less until you you're in a full sprint towards that goal. If I didn't stand up to my mother that day, you know, and of course we're thinking, we're talking about, you know, a Southern mom, trying to whoop your ass all the time and 
if I didn't stand up to my mom and, and tell her this is what I want to do with my life, I wouldn't have joined the Marcelinese Martial Arts Academy, which gave me jujitsu. And if I, again, if I didn't move back with my mom and I didn't swallow my pride, then I wouldn't have started training at the Gracie's. If I didn't stand up for myself, because when I was training at the Gracie's, they wanted to start charging me like $250 a month back in 2005. That's in Torrance, yeah? Yeah, Torrance. It was in Torrance, yeah. I was training there. And the reason why I was doing month to month is because I was a college student still. And I was working at Knott's Berry Farm. And then I was teaching at a Taekwondo program. I didn't know how my schedule was changed. I was an 18-year-old kid. I don't know. How, so I was like, listen, I'll just do month to month. I can't afford a whole year contract. And then once I got my blue belt, they upped the price on me like significantly, like $200, $250 a month. And I was like, I can't do that, man. Slowly, I started learning to stand up for the things that I want. No, this is crazy. I can't do that. Eventually, I learned that that me standing up for myself leads to me standing up from myself. Now, what I mean by that is you can be tired. You know, of course, I'm you know training all this and doing all that. I'm going to be tired, but am I being a bitch or am I just being tired? Do I need the rest? No, I'm just being, I'm just tired because it's, I'm tired because, you know, I've been doing a lot, but I need to get my ass to the gym and I need to drill. I need to get my ass to the gym and I need to lift. I need to do this. I need to do that. So standing up for myself led to me standing up from myself. So eventually, like you said, you learn to overcome these obstacles. You learn to translate martial arts into this, into, into the next thing, into the next thing, into Eventually, of course, becoming your own man, becoming your own person, becoming your own, uh, your own hero and your own story. So there's a lot of people that fight something like that. They'll face something like that, but then they don't have the balls or the wherewithal or the backbone or the belief in in themselves to go beyond that. What is it that you had that made you stand up? And what is it that you think that keeps people stuck where they're at, where they just kind of keep going through this mediocrity and then all of a sudden they're... 30 or 40 years old, and they're like, wow, what the hell did I do with my life? You know, I, honestly, I maybe I'm too dumb or stubborn. <laughs> maybe I'm too dumb to know that I'm failing, or maybe I'm too stubborn to to give into it. You know, I mean, there is an element of being bullheaded where it's like, no, this is what I want. There, This is what I'm going for, and this is what I'm – it's going to take a while, but I'm going to get there. I can relate that to here I am, 34 years old. I've had what – I went professional, what, 10 or 12 years ago. And it took me this long to get to the UFC. At any point, I could have been like, well, I guess the UFC is not going to happen. You know, I kind of whatever. But does that really seem like who I am? And I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, no, because I didn't start fighting to get to the UFC. I started fighting and everything because I wanted to be a traveling martial artist. I wanted to fight all around the world. I wanted to fight. So did I start this just to get into the UFC? No, I, start, I started this because I wanted to fight. And here I am fighting. So in my head, eventually the UFC will come eventually. And here, and here it is. And it happened and it happened in a, in a great way to where now, like I'm one of the record holders, you know? So it's like, okay, well, I was right. I was right in thinking that it's not just one place. That's the goal. It's what I'm doing. That was the goal the entire time. You know, oftentimes you lose sight of that. And when you regain sight of it, you, you gain a, you gain a, a solid foundation of, who you are, why you did it, why you started, and it's only going to push you even that much further. Like you said, it's exactly part of the journey. That's what makes the destination so sweet. And I'm the same way you are. If I'm trying to go out and get accolades or trying to do this certain thing, and I'm more concerned about, like you said, for you as the UFC specifically, but 
if you're worried about that, then you take your eye off of the prize, the process, the journey, the skill set, the humility that's required to get you to that place. And just like you said also about whether you were a four to one underdog on the UFC card or whether you stood up to your mom, the reality is this, in this life, you either choose what you want or somebody else makes a decision and makes a choice for you. And if you live your life constantly waiting for somebody to decide for you, it's never going to be in your best interest and you're going to be a fucking victim for the rest of your life. Absolutely, man. There's, there's no reason why, you know, we live, I mean, luckily we live in a country where there's so much that you can say yes to, but also so much that you can say no to. Growing up, I was in a, I was in a town where, you know, I was, I was the minority as far as when it comes to skin color. I was a minority. I was a, I was a short white kid with long hair. That was not the popular thing to be back in the day. So dealing with bullies, getting beat up and everything and being made to feel so different all the time, you know, you can, you can translate that in so many different ways. You know, you can rebel and you can try to over, try to be overly accepted by being what is popular, but to an extreme or accept that you're different and do things differently because you, you already know that you're different. So that's the route that I took. Anything I did, I didn't look for outside approval because I already was made to feel that I was different anyway. So I was like, well, what, what does it matter if I like rock music or if I like, you know, if I go from rock music to cumbias to, to rap music to, you know, I listen to all these different musics, all these different music influences and everything. And people say I'm weird. But I was like, yeah, I already knew that. I was already made to feel different when I was young. So here I am and I already know that I'm different. So there's, it's not news to me. So people calling me weird or this or, insulting me in whatever way it's not surprising to me because i've already been made to feel that way so now it's like yeah i already know these things but that's what makes me uniquely me that's why i see things this way you know it's funny to see all the you know i'm friends with a lot of the people that i grew up with now you know even though they were my bullies and everything it's like yeah we were kids and a lot of your you a lot of your actions towards me were influenced by your parents and i get that Whatever. I don't, I don't hold it against them. But now it's crazy to me that those same people whose parents didn't want their kids hanging around with me because I was a weird little white kid that would run around and, you know, I had too much energy. Yeah, don't bring him around. He's got too much energy. Now those are the people that are saying, my mom was watching you fight and she was rooting you on. And, you know, I used to have a nickname. Now I'm not sure if you speak uh, Spanish, but they used to call me V Diablo. The devil. Yeah, V Devil, baby. The VW. My mom calls me VW. She doesn't call me Victor. Oh, okay. my middle name is Wesley. So she goes, Victor's too much of a manly name for a kid. So I'll call you Victor when you're older. But now here I'm older. She still calls me VW. <laughs> so anybody who grew up with me, they pretty much call me VW. You know, so even to this day, if certain people call me Victor, I'm like, who are you talking about? Because it's obviously you're not talking about me. So I, I'm used to certain voices saying Victor, used to certain voices saying VW. Because my mom called me VW, because everybody else around my block called me VW, all the parents, they call me VW or they call me V Diablo. So now, here it is, all these years later, V Diablo is, is making some noise. And now, it's like, oh, hey, I knew him when he was a kid. He was such a nice boy. And he was like, well, I just say, you know what? You're forgiven. I don't forget. Whatever you were a parent, you were you were looking out for your kid. You didn't want your kid to be a certain way. I understand that, but do me the favor and admit you were wrong. <laughs> you know what is the biggest misconception about fighters that you think the people on the outside world have? You know what? I 
think that a lot of people, uh, a lot of people assume that fighters will always re- resort to violence whenever it gets uncomfortable. And that translates to a lot of things. You know, I went to a, I went to a friend's party a long time ago and, you know, and her dad was asking me, Oh, do you like soccer? No, I don't really watch soccer. I mean, I played a lot of sports, but I never watched them. Oh, do you watch football? Oh, do you watch basketball? I said, ah, baseball. No, I really don't watch very many sports. And he goes, what? And he basically insulting my manhood saying that, well, what kind of guy are you? You don't watch sports. And I was like, ah, just, it, it doesn't interest me very much. And then, so he's making fun of me and he's calling me all sorts of insensitive names. And I was like, ah, okay, cool, whatever. I don't care. You know, it don't bother me none. And then my friend tells her dad, oh, this is Victor. He fights professionally. He's a mixed martial artist, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden his complete demeanor changes. So now he goes from bravado to like, oh, well, I, uh, I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. Cause he thinks I'm going to beat him up. And it's like, well, no, like there are people out there who will always resort to people love to say violence is never the answer. And I say, that's wrong. Vol- violence is always an answer. It doesn't mean it's the correct answer, but it is always an answer. It is always available. It is the gold, it is the gold standard for any sort of anything, you know, don't get me wrong. Somebody comes into your house uninvited and they're trying to take what's yours, violence. You know, there's going to be some sort of violence. If somebody takes my parking space, probably not going to resort to violence, but guess what will happen? If I beat the crap out of him, chances are he's going to move that car. You know, somebody skips, skips me in line at McDonald's or whatever. Am I just going to haul off and just round kick him in the head from behind the head? No, that doesn't, that doesn't mean. But if I did, guess what? I would be next. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is never the answer, but it is, it is always an answer, you know, and that's, you know, of course, discretion. I don't, I don't condone going out there and beating the crap out of somebody just because they, you know, just because they, they stole your box of Wheaties or whatever. That's, you know, there's, there's reasons why escalation of force is a thing. We don't, as fighters, we train all day, we wrestle all day, we lift. So the last, probably the we want to do is get in another fight because in in our minds we're probably thinking man this is just another training session i just got all this done and now i gotta now i gotta fight this guy it's not what i want to do you know for my experience like i said there are guys out there that are just twisted they just they're looking just to to use their physical and and technical advantage on people which i think is wrong but those are usually the ones that are beat up at the gym because now they feel like they want to beat somebody else up because they didn't, they don't get it at the gym. You see social media a lot and you see now since your followers are skyrocketing, what is the worst piece of advice that you see continually recycled by people that are like, Oh, this is what you should do or this is what's going on. And we both know that it's a bunch of bullshit when you hear them saying that, like the fact that they make that statement tells me that they don't know what the hell's going on. Well, I, <laughs> I I got this one, you know, because sometimes, I mean, I don't let things bother me, but sometimes I get curious. I'm like, oh, what are people saying about it? You know, there seems to be a mis, uh, people that think that my head movement is going to get me in trouble. Yeah. And I'm just like, I can see where they're kind of coming from. Because, okay, in, in martial arts, what, what we got, what, we, what do we think about understanding? Okay. So I'm, in my head, I'm like, I'm trying to understand why you would say this. If somebody, has a lot of head movement and I pump my jab and they dip very far to their right, which is my left. What am I going to do? 
I'm going to try to kick him in the head. Yeah. You know, pump that yep. jab, switch kick him, right? Yep. Of course. Those same people will never go up to Canelo Alvarez and say, your head movement is going to get you knocked out. They would never say that to Floyd. The first thing they would say is, oh, your head movement is on point. Nobody's touching you. Of course, those are the, that's the gold standard. That's the, that's the goal to be not, to be untouchable, especially with your head movement. But, you know, in MMA, since there's so many more tools, so many more uh, weapons that somebody could use, you can't always see punches, kicks, knees, and everything. The only thing you can do is make an educated guess based on what's going on. So I see these people saying your head movement's going to, well, his head movement's going to get him savagely KO'd. Maybe it's going to keep me from getting hit square in the face a lot more you know if i didn't have head movement in this last huh in this last fight yes where would i be my nose would probably look like my opponents you know and instead all i came away was a little scratch right here everything else kind of glazed you know grazing off my forehead glazing off my chin you know just slightly out of the way or if i did get hit hit roll with the punch and come back and retake the center and be be being a good defensive stance moving your head is going to get you savagely ko'd do you even fight, dude? Like, <laughs> like, are you aware of what you're saying? Would you rather me keep my head up on a pedestal and get hit in the face? Yeah, or just do one of these? Like, <laughs> that makes no sense to me. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of that out there. Victor Henry, two more questions for you, and then I'll let you go. I know you have a lot going on, and thank you so much for your time already. When is your next fight in the UFC? And when are you going to be on Joe Rogan's podcast? Damn it. Oh, well, shit. As far as uh, next fight in the UFC, I have no idea yet. They haven't sent me. They haven't sent me anything. They haven't reached out to me. I'm thinking UFC is deliberating on what they want to do with me, because of course I was brought in as a heavy underdog. But even the U, I mean, the UFC is a company that puts on great fights. But fighting first for for the masses is an entertainment sport. So. I don't know if they want to match me linear to my uh, to my ranking, or if they want to start moving me up the ladder and start start working me towards you know hopefully a championship belt one day. I don't care. I just know that I want to continue fighting for as long as possible, and you know keep living uh, keep living the life of a traveling martial artist, keep improving my martial arts skill, and then fighting along the way. That's what I'm more that's what I'm more uh, more concerned about. So. As far as next fight, no idea. As far as Joe Rogan goes, hey man, I can go on anytime. I mean, I know he and I, which it's funny that we'd never met up until that first time I met him back in 2005 when he was in, when he was in the in elevator. The elevator with, yeah. Yeah, with my friend. And the last time I met him, which is of course at the fight, but we have a lot of mutual friends because of Legends, Legends MMA. That's where 10th Planet didn't get started, but that's where they, uh, that's where their main base was. First, outside of the bomb squad, yeah, you know him, his relationship with Eddie Bravo, and then his relationship with other other people that we all knew. It's like we have the same circle of friends, but we just never met because he's all been doing his thing, and I've been off doing my thing. So I really don't know, but um, hey, I'm welcome to it anytime. Yeah, I think he'd be happy to fly you down to Dallas or fly you down to Houston, and uh, you guys have a big old long conversation. I think. Oh, bro, that would be sick, especially if he's going hunting and stuff. I want to go hunting. I want to go. I want to go hunt a pig and boar and grill it up myself. I think that sounds fun. There's nothing like killing your own animal and then like eating it within an hour or two. It's just, it's it brings out that that caveman warrior component. 
Yeah, you know, and here's the thing. I'm down with it. I don't say no to a lot of things, but if it's a new experience in life, I'm going to be like, yeah, let's try this. I, I want to see how that, how that works out. There have been a number of times where Josh has put me in a position where figuring it out was my only option because he didn't give me very many, uh, very many details. One time I can name a uh, Thailand to train with, uh, Santianoi, who was actually, um, the coach of, uh, John Wayne Parr, Brian Popejoy, you know, things like that. I mean, people like that. And he goes, listen, you're going to pull up to this street. There's no signs on this street. So there's, don't look for, don't look for a certain sign or anything. There's going to be a red truck, old rusted red truck. You're going to head down that road. Now, once you get there, you're going to see a farm over here. And so it's not even, it's, he's giving me landmarks. And he goes, the, the place where you're going to train is around there. So sure enough, the taxi drops me off. I'm looking around. I see a temple. I see people selling fruit. I'm like, okay. Oh, Okay, well, I'm just going to look for a red truck. So I start walking and walking. I see a red truck. I'm like, okay. So I head down that road and, you know, to the right of me, there's this huge ox with, with, you know, horns, just massive. I'm just like, Jesus Christ. And then these giant lizards are running across the way. And I'm just like, okay, cool, whatever. And then I get to this big farm and I hear shins on, on tie pads, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I know I'm going in the right direction, but now I have to look for a driveway because I'm not walking through tall brush you know especially with cobras coming out and everything oh yeah so i'm like okay well i finally found a road and head that direction and sure enough i show up and i got you know i'm the farang you know i show up and i got my gym bag and first thing sent i first thing i see is an old thai man he goes Bita, put away in room and come down train i was like, okay well this is what's gonna happen so then there i was kicking kicking knee and elbowing and everything it's incredible where this adventure of, of martial arts leads us. And I love the fact that I, I can tell that you're going to be doing martial arts even after you stop fighting professionally, whenever that is, because this is so much, it's part of you. And frankly, we need more people like you in these big arenas to show people that this, yes, the fighting component is important. Yes, the entertainment component is important. But the art itself and the philosophy that is behind it can serve people in any arena that they enter, whether it be having to use violence to protect themselves or somebody else that can't defend themselves or having the wherewithal to say, you know what? I don't need to use violence right now. I can use these other skill sets. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, there's not very many avenues in life in which everybody can connect to. The only ones I've been able to find is music, violence, martial arts, and uh, that's about it. <laughs> Those are the only couple things where no matter what your, you know, your socioeconomic status is, no matter what race, no matter what, you know, how tall you are, how short you are, how skinny, how fat you are, what, you know, how much money your parents have, how much money you have. There's nothing like music, martial arts in, in, in those, in those aspects like it to where, Hey, anybody could play an instrument. You just got to practice. Anybody could be a great martial artist. You just got to practice. You got to be, you got to be willing to be better than some people and be worse than some people. And sometimes even the better, even the people that you're better than, you got to look at them. You have the people that are worse than you because they're going to teach you a little lesson that you might not even know. Victor Henry, thank you so much for being on my friend. Have an amazing class and I look forward to having many conversations with you. I'd love to get to see you shake your hand in person and and see you out there in the octagon, my friend. Absolutely. If I ever make my way out to Oklahoma, I will let you know, bud. And you hit me up. You let me know. We'll go get some uh, 
go shoot some guns and eat some meat. Absolutely, man. I'm forward to that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.